How I Got Here, the inside stories of startups and innovation in travel and transportation with your hosts, FocusWire's Kevin May and Mozio's David Litwack. Welcome to another episode of How I Got Here. These are the inside stories behind travel startups and innovation. Uh, I'm Kevin May from Focuswire. I'm joined as always by my co-host David Litwack from Mozio. So welcome everybody. Uh, this week's guest is uh, Henrik Zilmer from AirHelp. Now, uh, I imagine a lot of you will know AirHelp, but for those that don't, here's the, uh, here's the kind of introduction of the brand. So AirHelp fights for passengers' rights for compensation when a flight is delayed or cancelled. That's something I imagine we can all kind of understand. Uh, the company's mission is to make flying less painful when airlines screw up. Again, something we also know a lot about. Right, so uh, the company is backed by uh, Coastal Ventures, uh, Y Combinator, Universal Music Investments, Evan Williams, uh, uh, Naval Ravicon, uh, and Morton Lund, no less, and many others. It's based in New York and has a sole founder, as I say, in the shape of Henrik Zilmer. Uh, welcome to How I Got Here, Henrik. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. Okay, right. So we always like to kick things off. You tell us, how did you get here? Give us your kind of, your very brief kind of overview of uh, the foundation of the business. Yes. So summing up seven years now, um, well, uh, in the beginning, uh, the idea came to me on a beach in Bali, uh, where I, after many years of being delayed, having my flights canceled, uh, started looking into this um, and figuring out that you actually have rights as an air passenger. Uh, and then with my background uh, in tech and with my family full of lawyers and pilots, um, I started doing research and found out how to actually do this, uh, these claims and claim compensation when your flight is delayed. Right, the secret that the airlines have kept uh, for the last 10, 20 years. Um, and I figured that one out and uh, did it for myself, my colleagues, my friends, uh, and eventually saw the opportunity in uh, making that into a business. Um, and that was seven years ago. And today we're yeah, more than 700 employees um, and uh, yeah, the biggest in Europe by far uh, started in South and North America too, and Asia coming on board also soon realizing that this was a problem for everyone who flies basically uh, because you don't want to deal with this hassle and talking to the airlines themselves. So that was how the whole thing got started. Has it been fun? Uh, it has been a roller coaster uh, up and down <laughs> since the beginning. So I can tell you it's not always been fun, uh, but uh, it's never been boring. Uh, and that is probably what I um, I look to the most, uh, right? Like the challenges that comes with it, um, even when it goes bad, uh, but also the challenges that comes with it going very well, uh, which has also been the case for us, uh, where we've simply been drowning in claims or customers, and we haven't had the capacity to process them. Um, but yeah, I would say it's been uh, it's been probably. The best word is exciting uh, and uh, very uh, educational, um, and um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's been uh, a fun ride so far. Um, so wouldn't have missed it for the world. <laughs> hey, Henrik. So David here. Um, I imagine that this doesn't uh, make the airlines particularly happy. They were probably uh, saving a lot of money before you came along. So. Uh, do you have any, you know, anecdotes or you know about your relationship with those uh, airlines, or uh, how to, how have you uh, formed those relationships? Yeah, so this is the question I get asked a lot, right? The, the airlines must hate you, um, and I see it a little bit as a love-hate relationship, right? I love them, and they hate me. Um, but uh, nonetheless, uh, there has to be some uh, watchdogs in place uh, like us to, to help the passenger. Um, so by default, you know, it hasn't been easy building relationships with the airlines because they rather wish that we didn't exist, right? And they don't really agree to the air passenger rights either, right? They feel it's tough enough to be an airline. 
right? So why should they then also compensate you if you're uh, <laughs> spending 10 hours in the airport? Um, but there are the laws are there for a reason, um, and it's of course to incentivize the, the, the airlines to not uh, speculate in just letting you wait um, and um, and instead trying to get you to your destination faster. So, so that is what we, we know what we've been fighting for, and and, and we have had uh, some breakthroughs with some airlines, um, the more customer friendly ones, um, and where we today work together with them, uh, right? So we have daily communication. Um, we haven't reached a point yet where we're also having our machines or our code talking together, uh, but that will come um, someday when we're big enough. Um, but uh, most of the airlines, and particularly the low-cost carriers, uh, those are tough, right? So, for example, when we started, um, Ryanair, uh, the low-cost carrier in Europe, only received claims every other or every second Friday and only between 12 and 2, and only by fax, right? So that was uh, for all air passengers flying with Ryanair. That was the only way they could submit a claim, and who the hell owns a fax, by the way? Uh, and by, and then we didn't get an answer on those claims anyways, right? So that was, you know, that relationship has never worked, and it's always been a fight uh, with those guys. But, you know, then you have to um, whip the, 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 the hammer, so to speak, and, and today, ironically, AirHelp has also become one, if not the biggest law firm in the world, measured on uh, one uh, cases. So just to give you an idea, uh, AirHelp has processed uh, about 250,000 uh, lawsuits against airlines, uh, right? And that we're doubling every year. Um, so every city court in all of Europe and now South America, North America, will know about air help or already know about air help because we constitute a big chunk of the cases that's going through the system just because some airlines ignore us don't pay all then we have to have this legal arm to make sure that they actually live by the law right so and so i have a ton of examples where airlines have tried to team up and declare us illegal and get our website shut down and calling like the is the esp to close the website We've had uh, other airlines sue us because we mentioned their names on the website, uh, even though we, to we totally can, uh, but uh, don't just because they don't want any affiliation with us. Um, we have had airlines systematically uh, lying uh, about uh, rights to the passengers, uh, and where we have then been able to go in and, and prove them wrong. Um, there's thousands of horror stories and cases uh, where. Um, the airlines have just not been right. Um, so we definitely have seen since we started that you know that was the tip of the iceberg, and then the, we we got to map out the, the the size of the problem, right? And and it is really big. Um, so yeah, uh, it's a love hate relationship. Uh, we're getting better with some airlines, worse with others. Um, but that's the name of the game. Um, but that's also what makes it fun. It, but yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not the guy who gets upgrade. Gets gets free upgrade. <laughs> uh, quite the contrary, actually. I, I get blacklisted and 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 downgraded to cargo. <laughs> it's it's hundreds of questions that we're kind of coming off the back of just what you said. I mean, one that uh, would I be interested to know is there a direct correlation between the the airlines that are happier to work with you are those that have fewer complaints required to be filed against them or are some airlines just they're more predisposed to being helpful yeah i think they are if you look at the full service airlines right so the lufthansa the british airways the sas then they tend to uh, acknowledge the law and follow them because the airlines are also partly owned by the countries that instated the law so uh, they they are more prone to uh, to live up to the law. However, if you look at the low cost carriers, uh, then it gets more tricky uh, because they, by definition, don't want to pay out, and they don't care if the customer have had a bad experience. Even you know some airlines, Ryanair, want you to have a bad experience every three times you third time you fly with Ryanair because <laughs> if you don't have a bad experience, then your expectations will go up. <laughs> for next time you're flying with them. And, and you shouldn't have that, right? So it's kind of reversed customer experience. They actually want you to have a shitty experience. So 
for them, uh, you know, not following the law, uh, that's part of their uh, culture in terms of air passenger rights. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Um, so, yeah, it, it really, um, really fluctuates. U.S. airlines are, are a little bit more customer-oriented. Uh, they, however, don't want to give away the customer experience. So they want to keep that with them. Uh, so they want the customers to contact them first and not go through an intermediate like us. Um, but uh, airlines like JetBlue, for example, they're very customer-friendly. And they have their own set of compensation rules that is not even something that the Department of Transportation have said. It's just something they wish to do for their customers. And that's one of the most profitable airlines in the U.S. So, uh, you know, it is possible to actually give a good customer experience, follow the law, uh, and, and run a profitable business at the same time. So you said that your systems aren't quite talking to theirs yet at one point. So, and then you gave this example that was completely ridiculous of faxing from 12 to 2 every other Friday to Ryanair. So are you, uh, when you first started up, were you doing that? Did you just have to literally buy a fax machine and put it in your office? And if so, are you still doing that? Or have you figured out more clever ways to, to get around it? Yeah, no, good question. Uh, in the beginning, yes, that was the case, right? So also when we went to Y Combinator in 2014, you know, we were told it's fine that you're doing all this stuff that's not scalable at all. Because first you have to figure out if this you know, business model works and if there's a value here for the customer. So everything we did in the beginning was just manual and uh, you know, super tedious work, but uh, nonetheless something that had to be done. Um, and then once we you know, got to raise a little bit of money, we got more customers, it started working. We could then hire the developers to uh, start building the um, uh, robots to automate the process. And that's been a journey we've been on now for five years. Um, and uh, that means that the majority of claims we process today are not handled by people, it's handled by our uh, robots um, at multiple stages of the uh, claim uh, process. Um, and some claims today even uh, are handled fully automatically. So. That means they're validated, they're sent, uh, and the payout received and uh, forwarded to the customer by robots completely. And so here we can scan what the airlines are sending us. Uh, so it might not be that the airline is uh, using API integration to, to talk to our system, but they are manually then sending an email that we can read. And uh, based on that email, we can pro uh, continue uh, the claim process or the, the our machine learning algorithms can. Um, so that's the fascinating part of it, right? Because here you have these one-eyed dinosaurs of airlines spending, you know, a lot of money on each claim that they need to process and hiring more people to do so. And on our side, we have uh, robots that's doing everything 10,000 times faster and cheaper, right? So, uh, you know, one uh, guess who's going to lose, right? So, so that's really um, uh, the uh, the exciting part of, of this battle too, right? And the airlines know this, right? That you know, innovation is not going to come from within them. So at some point, they have to uh, start uh, playing along. It's just uh, this relationship with the airlines, kind of part of the story. I mean, can you give us any examples of when the, the conversations that you've had with airlines and how they've been resolved or not resolved? Um, yeah, so it's, uh, I, I can't go into the specifics on some of the details because that's also uh, of something we keep among ourselves and, and, and some airlines can't also just go out publicly and, and, and announce uh, partnerships like that. Um, but, uh, I think there are, you know, multiple times where we've had disagreements about how the law should be interpreted. And then we, instead of then fighting each other on thousands of claims, we've then agreed to then say, okay, let's go to the court of justice and maybe even to the, the highest uh, court of justice and uh, figure out how the law should be interpreted. And that's been a very friendly talk and, and where we together have uh, found out um, a solution to it uh, and then based on that moved on. In some cases it worked, it went off in favor. Uh, in other cases it was in the airline's favor. So, um, so I think when it comes to like legal work, and that was news to me because I'm not a lawyer, 
Um, and I thought, you know, laws were followed, but then I found out, oh, okay, apparently no, laws are not followed unless you go to court in some cases. So, so here I had to really become a little bit of a, a lawyer and also uh, understand how these discussions, uh, dialogues go and, and, and how you find solutions to it. And then it's, it's uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's been educational, but it has been achieved on, on some airlines um, that we do work together with, maybe not fully automatic yet, but um, that we work together uh, on mapping out the law uh, as well. So this might be a, kind of an odd way of asking this question, but you know we've been uh, Facebook friends for a while, and I've seen a fair amount of PR PR hits about you. And um, sometimes I can't read them because they're in Danish newspapers, but um, I've seen a couple uh, magazine covers, et cetera. And it seems like you've done a pretty good job of of uh, kind of using maybe this conflict with the airlines as uh, kind of being the crusader for the people, and it seemed to be very. PR worthy. So, you know, could you speak a little bit about how you've thought about PR and and positioning uh, when it comes to the public in your company? Yeah, uh, because our case is also a little bit different than most other cases. Um, so, PR has been one of the biggest acquisition ch- channels for us uh, over time, uh, and it has been that because uh, air passenger rides touches so many people especially when it's travel season. Everyone travels, right? And everyone is, has been on a flight. And if you look back in the last five years worth of flights, maybe you've also been delayed or more than three hours. So, so it touches upon a lot of people or a lot of their friends and family who have heard these stories about people getting delayed and lost a vacation day and all that. So when we talk to journalists and our network of travel journalists around the world, then being able to provide them with data on the likelihood of delays and how many people are going to be uh, in, uh, affected. Um, also for the airports to know, for the airlines to know, like this information has is newsworthy and it's something that again and again is being uh, presented to, you know, the potential traveler uh, every travel season. So uh, we have invested a lot in building up internal PR teams, also using PR agencies, um, but that uh, has given us the ability to educate a lot more people uh, about air passenger rights. Because still today, that's the biggest uh, uh, challenge for us, right? If you go to US, uh, less than 2% of US travelers know uh, their air, like the air passenger rights, right? Less than 2%. Basically means that no one knows uh, if they're entitled or what they're entitled to. It's a little bit better in Europe because we have started in Europe and the market is becoming more mature. But still here, we're talking about uh, 15, 20% of people who are actually getting their compensation. So it's still very low. Uh, and PR uh, is a great channel through which you can educate people. Because if you're just bidding out, you know, AdWords, Facebook campaigns, display advertising, people's going to have a filter. However, if it's coming from a journalist who've done the investigations, checked the numbers, uh, and read the law as well, uh, then it's more trustworthy. And that's really the route we have to go. Because end of the day, like our goal is to inform as many passengers about their rights. They can apply themselves if they have the time, um, or they can give it to us if they want. But our kind of end goal is that everyone who travels will know their air passenger rights and also get the compensation. Uh, and that's actually why we also AirHelp was started as an organization, not necessarily a business that would go in and. Um, and for profit, but um, but then we realized if we were to deal with all these thousands of claims, uh, we had to have some uh, revenue coming in as well. Um, so um, yeah, PR has been important for us. So quick follow up on that. It reminds me actually of a anecdote I heard from um, Paul Graham of Y Combinator um, about a rap genius uh, coming to him, uh, which is a. a a lyric annotation platform that also went through Y Combinator a few years ago, coming to him and saying something about uh, how their distribution was uh, SEO and uh, PR and saying only do, uh, he laughed at first and then they, they gave him some uh, stat that said, you know, 1% of, uh, you know, of searches online were uh, for song lyrics and that's how they could get away with it. I feel like PR is you know, a little similar where, you know, if most people say as their business, their distribution strategy is, strategy is PR, people are going to laugh in their face. You know, what about your 
I guess what I'm getting at with the question here is I'd be curious if you have any, any advice here for people like when they can really rely on PR. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So that was the same thing you all said to us and, and, and my company was like, no one can build a business on, 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 a, on a PR as the acquisition channel, right? Because at some point it's just not going to be news anymore. Right, but I, but in our case, it's just so it's it's a cycle. It's travel season every year. It's relevant for more people, and and you know they tend to forget too. So uh, it's just it's it's a special case. So I wouldn't generally recommend other companies to say, yeah, go for PR, uh, because uh, it, it's it's only in our case that it has, it has worked out, and then it has also worked out because we had in-house PR. Uh, and most other companies tend to use agencies uh, and they kind of run out of their, you know, journalist contacts after six months and then you have to switch agency again <laughs> and so forth. So, you know, you never really get top quality uh, through through agencies, it's my opinion, but my different uh, others might have other uh, experiences. Um, but in our case, it made sense that we had to educate the whole world and therefore we had to build a knowledge center that would feed the news outlets with with uh, stats and information as the only one because no one else has this has data right and process so many claims and take legal action so many times and um, so it worked for us but uh, and i can tell you that uh, you know as fun anecdote when airhub first launched uh, in you in scandinavia we uh, were actually trying to get a film crew from uh, like the danish consumer rights tv program that was running every week um, to come and follow us to the airport and try to find a flight that was delayed and where we would then inform all the passengers uh, about the rights and, and, and help them get their compensation. Uh, and that happened in one of the first weeks we launched where there's like, now it's a flight, it's going to London. Okay, you know, let's go to the airport right now, call the TV station, call the TV station, let's meet in the airport, rush to the airport, but on the way found out that we had forgot our passports. So we had to go back and find out, get our passports back <laughs> to the airport because we had to go to the other side of security, right? So in order to get to the other side of security, to the gate where the passengers were waiting more than three hours, we then also had to buy cheap tickets for another airline so we could pass the security and then, uh, of course, not take the flight, but just go to the gate. Um, uh, but then when we reached security and and we had to go through a different security than the TV crew, which, which made it in time, thankfully. But then we had to go through security. Then I got, you know, into a big pool of uh, other people uh, and that was then taken aside for whatever questioning uh, unlockedly. But then my co-founder, Nico, actually, he made it through. And then I just said to him, run, right? No, don't save me. <laughs> run to the gate. And then uh, he ran to the gate, met the TV crew, um, and then at the TV crew, uh, or then at, at, at that gate, uh, I wasn't following up, but figured out along the way that it was in a different terminal. And at that terminal, you had to show passport and, and my ticket was not going, but ticket for that flight was at a different terminal than, than the terminal I was at. So that also created a lot of confusion with the, with the, with the guys checking passport, but I sneaked my way in, we made it to the gate, got up on a, ta on a chair and said, okay, everyone here is entitled to $300 in compensation. Uh, uh, SAS has not told you this, but this, these, these are the laws, right? And they are actually, a, they have to tell it by law, but they didn't. Uh, and then everything was filmed and the TV was like spotlight and I was running around telling people uh, and SAS ground staff was just standing there like calling the local airport police to come and, and get us out. And they eventually came and then they basically took us and kicked us out of the airport because airports are private grounds, I found out. So you're not allowed to solicit. Um, so then we got reported to the police. That program launched uh, the day after and it uh, we got 3,000 customers from that TV program. And that was the uh, first real PR push we did. Uh, it didn't cost us more than the cheap tickets. Uh, that we never used, uh, but it gave us 3,000 customers and that, that was the point where we knew, okay, we were onto something. Wow. <laughs> That's a great story. Yeah, first right? of all, I think we should uh, you know, take a moment to appreciate that you know, <laughs> there's a Danish consumer rights TV show. I'm imagining some Scandinavian utopian version of Ashton Kutcher's Punked. Or something like that. That definitely would not happen in America. Um, but uh, 
yet another uh, thing to convince us the Scandinavian model has some value. Uh, we, we, we did it again in the US. So once we went to Y Combinator, then we did it in JFK and SFO. And there we were also kicked out. Right. So, uh, but uh, yeah, <laughs> but then eventually CFO allowed us because there's actually an area within CFO, like a speaker's corner where you can go and then you can like share your opinion on whatever you want in, in the airport, but you're not allowed to go to the, to the gates. Uh, so, and since we were there, you know, on uh, non-immigrant visas, uh, we didn't want to start being <laughs> reported to the police and getting kicked out of the country, not being able to come back. So, so we kind of abandoned that strategy, not scalable, but nonetheless <laughs> good to, uh, to get off the ground. So I got one more follow-up question here on PR because I think it's actually, we've done uh, a few of these now and um, it's something actually we haven't touched on a lot often because we're speaking to um, B2B businesses where PRs is uh, not uh, one of their core distribution strategies. Um, but, you know, for those of us who can't afford to build an internal PR team, um, I know I've wasted a ton of money uh, with agencies. Um, what is your suggestion for, uh, you know, maybe a good middle ground? Um, yeah, um, I think uh, it's just that we, we've, we've tried so many agencies uh, and uh, at the end, what we decided was to do it in-house, right? Because you can, you know, if you're paying an agency in the US uh, 10,000 a month, right? That's uh, a pretty good, you know, one person full-time who can uh, go out to the conferences, work the, the network, uh, pitch the story to the right journalists. Uh, maybe that person had worked in journalism before and already have a network uh, and knows the, like the, the core of the company. And it's just so much better at pitching the story uh, uh, than what an agency would be like, because an agency have thousands of stories and they don't always understand it. And then it becomes like, well, maybe not so interesting. Right. So uh, finding that angle is something that we're good at. And having it in-house has helped a lot. Uh, so today we only use agencies in markets uh, where we go in and we have no network and then we have to build the network and then uh, we, we use the network of the agencies. Uh, but the stories and the, and, the, and the angle on it is something we always uh, do ourselves. So I would actually recommend um, startups like uh, do it yourself. Find someone who is good in content who can pitch and then uh, go out and find these uh, journalists. Uh, if you want to use an agency as well, you can do it in addition to, but don't expect too much from it. And here I would then target the agencies who's a little bit more guerrilla approach perhaps uh, and who doesn't cost a fortune, um, but who has certain uh, journalists to get you know the first articles out there um, and um, yeah, uh, who help startups probably primarily and within your sector, right? Uh, so do your due diligence and and comparison analysis on, on the agencies and don't just pick the biggest one. Um, so, yeah. Thank you. I'm, I'm sure there are, we could chat for ages about some of the PR stunts that you've done. They were mm. great. Thank you. Uh, Henrik, I mean, interesting, I'll change tack a little bit. I mean, give us a sense of what your approach to raising capital has been. I mean, it's been a, dare I say, a, a fairly modest amount so far. And given that you haven't had to spend a ton on customer acquisition, what have you, what's been the, the story that you've had around funding and what would a lot of funding give you that you don't have now? Yeah, so we haven't raised a ton of money. So by now it's about 25 million. Um, and for a company of 700 employees and, and the, the revenue we're doing, then typically you would have seen a much higher, bigger rounds uh, where, you know, sometimes the, the revenue equals the money you raised, right? Uh, but we actually uh, became, uh, we didn't become profitable because we invested a lot into the company again, but we did start uh, to make money very early on. And that, of course, financed our growth uh, some part. Uh, but we did raise our seed through Y Company in uh, a demo day. We did raise a Series A and we did raise a Series B. Uh, not anything big, but it was enough for the capital needs that we needed. Uh, but in the beginning, gosh, it was difficult. Like, wow, that was really, uh, uh, you know, as everyone experienced, and it's tough to explain, but, you know, it is really a quick, like 50 or 75 no's for every yes. 
Um, and it's even worse in Europe because there's a lot less risk willing capital, a lot less rich people or people who are doing an angel investments. Um, so uh, it was not before we actually headed to the US uh, and uh, went to, through my combinator that we started to have a little bit of a breakthrough in our investor talks. And Paul always said, like, if you don't know if you're good at fundraising, you're not. Right. So, <laughs> so that was also maybe like in the beginning where we you know we thought in my background, like I, I thought, like, you know, I was pretty good at it, but realized that no, I was, you know, it was difficult. Uh, and also do remember that, you know, that industry had no benchmarks whatsoever. So a lot of people just thought there was a charity case, right? Oh, you're going to get money from airlines who don't want to pay you money. And then you want to get my money so you can start paying lawyers to sue them. You know, I, that's, I'm not interested, right? Uh, and sometimes even pitching it to myself, also it's like, what the fuck am I doing? Um, but uh, nonetheless, we were stubborn and we knew we, that, the co- that there was a demand from a customer side and we knew it also could work. So we pushed through, but the first two years, uh, our first year, we didn't raise anything. Then after Y Combinator, thankfully, we had a great pitch pitch and then we uh, a lot of the investors angels jumped on board here so it got a lot easier and that was follow up yeah that was that was follow up by the csa which then was a little bit easier b was a little bit easier so you know the more traction you have the easier it got uh, but uh, we never really were the typical venture uh, route company that would do you know hundreds of millions of each round because it it has it still isn't necessary for us to to do what we we want to do okay it's interesting that you know do you do you sense you uh henrik that you're at a level where you probably wouldn't need to raise much more or you know, is the business going well enough and it's scaling enough that you've done okay with what you have raised uh, yeah so so that's uh that's where we are now right that the company is profitable and, and we don't need to dilute ourselves further in order to reach the growth targets that we want then you can argue uh, you know some companies go out and then raise billions and say okay we need to go get there even faster yeah. and that's also different industries right because here you might go out and buy customers for three times the basket size right and take a huge loss uh, to get get uh, to get a bigger share of the market but what we are doing is basically educating the market and starting in an industry for the first time where we need to build the industry. But, and we can't really make the legal systems within these countries who has never seen these claims before go faster. Right? So even if we threw a lot of money at it, it wouldn't go faster. So it just takes the time it takes. Uh, and therefore, you know, we not, might not be growing 400% year on year, but 100% year on year, which is also uh, darn good compared yeah. to other or many other companies. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a little bit different. But yes, maybe in the in the future, you will go out and, and finance the grow or the, the 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 expansion into other parts of the world um, by with local investors who can then help us uh, locally partnerships, uh, also PR, marketing, and such. Uh, so. Uh, we're definitely always in fundraising mode, but then there's active fundraising and passive fundraising. And I think we're in the passive fundraising mode. Okay, thank you. So we've talked a lot about your direct-to-consumer, uh, specifically around PR. Um, I do remember getting an email from Kayak a couple of years ago saying uh, how uh, they were going through my history of flights and that I was probably eligible for a, uh, a reimbursement via AirHelp. Um, um, at least I'm pretty sure that was you. So, I, you know, what is your distribu- B2B distribution strategy and how have you thought about that? Yeah, also a very good question uh, because a lot of startups out there probably find themselves in a situation where they have to choose between B2B or B2C, right? Because, and B2B, I typically mean B2B2C, right? So going through partners to get to the end user who will use your product. Uh, and we also had to, you know, make that decision saying, which direction are we going, right? Uh, are we just going direct to consumer? Or are we trying to get to, to partners to the consumer? Uh, and what we ended up choosing was, of course, the hardest way, right? Which was to do both uh, at the same time, um, because uh, we knew that uh, the partners would also be interested, even though they've never heard about this before, then it's very little work for them uh, to activate AirHelp as a partner and then, 
being able to offer this service to all their customers who buy flight tickets with them. Um, so we decided to do both, and that was difficult in the beginning with very limited resources. And these sales cycles are also very long. But if you want to sign the biggest online travel agents or travel management companies in the world, then there's some due diligence uh, and there's uh, uh, some legal work and there's some SLAs that needs to be signed. Uh, so uh, you have to be of a certain size to be able to partner up with these guys um, and live up to requirements. So, so that process we did in parallel with targeting the customers directly. And we're so happy we did that today because uh, most of the biggest online travel agents today, now you mentioned Kayak, but a lot more and travel management companies, uh, GDA systems, they work with us today. Right, so we, uh, from very early on, built the systems and integrations, got the knowledge in place to uh, to partner with these guys and make sure that through them, we could educate the people because this is push marketing, right? This is where you're actually saying, hey, you were on a flight that was entitled to compensation. They would never have received that from the travel insurance company or from the airline themselves or figured it out them by themselves because they don't know that things exist. So uh, it was uh, a core part of our strategy to get to the customer. Um, but yeah, I can tell you a lot about closing these deals uh, because I think we have been one of the fastest companies in the travel space to close that amount of big partners in the tra like OTA, uh, TMC space. Uh, I have not heard about anyone uh, achieving that. So uh, yeah, lots of learnings there. Um, lot of hard work. An interesting one that we've had very few in the, uh, the the how I got here that we've recorded. Very few sole founders. Most have been, you know, CEO and co-founder. How do how have you found it being, you know, dare I say, on your own as a as the you know the founding member of the of the organisation? Yeah, uh, I would say I was never on my own. I was never on my own. I, from the beginning, uh, AirHelp had uh, different founders. Uh, we lost some in the beginning uh, who, again, thought it was a charity project and wouldn't become you know, uh, uh, a money-making company one, uh, someday. And uh, new partners came in, co-founders came in. Um, so I was never alone. Right? And, and I would never recommend anyone to start a company alone. Uh, because that's just too tough and there needs to be someone else who steps in when you're down and and uh, pick you up and all vice versa uh, because you are not good at everything uh, you need to have someone else who's better at uh, certain points and who can assist you and i can tell you today that had i not had those co-founders come in uh, then we would like i, I, I wouldn't be sure that they would exist today uh, but for sure, we wouldn't have achieved the success like in that in that speed uh, had we not had uh, our, those uh, people come in and help through uh, the different phases of the company. Um, so forever grateful for everyone who's helped me out on this one. And, and I, I wouldn't, I never seen myself as a sole founder um, because it's taken a lot of a lot of effort from a lot of people to get where we are. Yeah. So I. Uh want to ask a quick uh question i'd love to hear or have you uh repeated on air the story about uh richard branson i'll just leave it at that <laughs> yeah so uh, that was actually uh back in 2015 i think so i've always had a dream about going to necker island and i'm a kite surfer myself so you know going to necker to kite and to meet richard branson uh, that was just a dream come true and this was actually through a kiting entrepreneurial uh, uh, like association or organization called Maitai uh, that was uh, having this event on Necker and then for you know founders within the space that was interesting to Richard then you know uh, you could you could get an invite and um, so I went down there and it was not a big group I think we were 25 and then <laughs> on, uh, on the first day uh, like there was a a beautiful island there was a big jacuzzi I jumped in uh, Richard jumps in too so I'm sitting there in the jacuzzi talking to Richard Branson um, uh, about uh, my company and, and like you know it was just uh, unreal um, and you know talking about the problem and all these people being stranded and 
uh, not getting any help. And by the way, you know, you started Virgin uh, Airlines because you had a bad experience on BVI where your flight was canceled and they didn't help you and you had to wait 24 hours. But that's actually a big problem today also for Virgin Airlines because we get a lot of these customers, right, who's coming to me and asking for help. And then I look at him and then he fucking hated it. <laughs> He just like thought I was the biggest pain in the butt and just like, oh, horrible idea because, you know, he probably heard about it or like disagreed with the law, but, you know, which was really surprising because I would, you know, think that he would be the first one to understand, oh, you know, you've got to take care of your customers and if the flight is, is you know, is canceled, then you make got to make sure that they get home somehow, right, or are compensated. But, you know, he probably wasn't into the details about everything i don't like he has his deputies and all the verticals of virgin right um but for sure he perceived it a little bit as uh, ambulance chasing um and uh, you know the uk us version of litigation where you know like lawyers would chase ambulances to make sure that you know clients would uh, be uh, getting the right treatment. If not, then they would be sued, or the hospitals would be sued all over uh, to their neck, which is very different. You know, we're based on consumer rights. This is uh, law in here. The lawyers take up to 100% fee. So the customers actually end up getting nothing, which is crazy. Uh, whereas what we're doing, you know, is max 25% fee. And it's a much, much, much lower claim value, right? So a lot of these people, even the Virgin Airlines people, you know, if we got them compensation, they wouldn't be able to get a buy another flight home. Anyways, uh, you can hear this pitch was given to Richard and trying to speak uh, my case, but uh, he didn't like it. And uh, after that, uh, it was a little bit uh, cold uh, atmosphere. I did get to go kiting with him and I did have a lot of fun. But I haven't been invited back since. <laughs> Thank you. I got uh, uh, two quick questions to wrap us up, uh, please, Henry. Uh, uh, first of all, how many lawyers do you employ within the company? Just out of curiosity, we have a hundred. So out of the seven hundred people, a hundred people are lawyers all over the world. Okay, interesting. Okay, uh, and last one then from me. So, um, I noticed that you're a founder and the chairman of a. Uh, a company called Room, is that correct? Yes. How yeah. do you, yeah? How do you, how do you fit that in with your time? You, you got yeah. To... It, it's very difficult, um, but uh, again, you have to rely on a lot of really talented people helping you out. Um, but I just couldn't uh, resist on this one, and, and it came actually as a spin-off of AirHelp. Uh, because uh, throughout the growth that we've gone through, we've moved office every six months. Every six months, uh, that would be San Francisco or New York or in Europe, because when you're hiring that many people and growing your headcount uh, or doubling your headcount every year, uh, then you just have to move into bigger spaces. And every time we found ourselves uh, not with, you know, without enough meeting rooms, uh, too tight spaces, I was spending all my time in hallways and down the street trying to make important calls. And it was so painful that eventually I said, okay, now I'm going to start building phone booths for AirHelp where we people can go and have a private conversation. And these booths are going to be assembled like Ikea. So we can take them with us when we move office. They're going to be soundproof. <laughs> they're going to be looking good. And they're going to be a fraction of the price that's what's out there today where you, by the way, can't even buy a booth online. Uh, you have to go through wholesalers and get quotes and what have you. So that was the IKEA for phone booths uh, uh, idea, and 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 it became so popular, of course, for AirHelp, but also for a lot of other companies uh, that saw the booths or wanted booths, and then uh, it was spun off into a separate company. Uh, have a co-founders on that one too, um, and that one is going extremely well. Uh, also, mostly in the US, but um, you know that was uh, a, again a problem that needed to be solved. Um, and it became so evident that I had to do something about it. Um, so that became room. Uh, but yeah, trying to manage both uh, is uh, tricky. Uh, but I actually feel that uh, now uh, my um, contribution is best when I'm actually a little bit outside the eye of the hurricane uh, and the daily uh, operations and more looking at it from, from a different perspective than, uh, than the people who are in it. Um, so I, I, I've, I've been able to manage both, but let's see.
That's great. Thank you. We're uh, delving into your, your past here or other endeavors. I actually had a question along these lines as well. Um, I know you used to work for Rocket Internet, and for our listeners who don't really know who that is, uh, it'd be great if you could explain, um, but they're kind of renowned for, um, I'd say, some of their processes. I'll leave it at that, and maybe you can explain a little bit more, but I'd be curious to understand what you might have learned from them about what you what to do right, and um, because they've got quite a reputation, maybe what to do, uh, what not to do as well. Yeah, so Rocket uh, Internet uh, was uh, a year and a half, so not so long, but that was uh, before I started AirHelp. Um, and uh, Rocket has a very bad reputation out there because uh, it's a German run uh, incubator. You can oh, yeah, say this is an incubator, but they choose the ideas and then they hire the people the best and the brightest to execute on these ideas. And then they're fantastic at raising a lot of money. Um, and then um, you are given a big bag of money to then convert that into a business, typically within e-commerce and typically some a business model that has already been validated in the States or other places that then now needs to just be expanded into uh, other parts of the world that don't have that, uh, that model yet. Uh, so that's kind of the concept of rocket internet. Uh, and that basically meant that back in the day when I uh, started from Rocket, you get to the headquarter in Berlin and you go up to this uh, tumbler and you choose a number and then you're you know sent out to some corner of the world on some project. Um, and, and that also happened to me. So I went to Sydney, to Australia first to start uh, the the copy of Sapos, right? So shoes and clothes in Australia called the Iconic, uh, and we did that followed by eight other ventures in Southeast Asia, which was also the Sapos copy. Uh, that one was called Salor. Uh, and throughout this period, we launched a web shop with all the SKUs, so all the shoes and clothes, with fulfillment, with payment gateway, which is very difficult in countries where payment gateways and online purchasing isn't really that common. Uh, every month, right? So every month, launch of a new web shop in a new country with a new shipping supplier, uh, fulfillment, everything. So you basically worked 24-7. And actually, in some days, we worked 25-7 because when you were flying back to Berlin, you got a couple of extra hours. And so uh, that was actually <laughs> the joke. And that was like really tough times, very exciting. Um, I would not stay there for a longer period of time uh, because then it gets too much and the learning curve starts to drop. Uh, but it is a great school for entrepreneurship because I don't know of many other universities or companies that give you a big pile of cash and then tells you go out and make you know all the mistakes you need to make but do it as fast as possible um, and then get this project off the ground and um, so uh, it has probably been one of the most fundamental uh, like learnings in my entrepreneurial career um, and I will leave it at that because after year and a half, two years, then the culture, when, when it always have to go so fast, um, then uh, it becomes a little toxic. And that's what most people are hearing about. But they never really hear about the learnings that you get from, from, uh, uh, from getting a lot of responsibility like that. So, so I would recommend it as a school. Uh, I wouldn't recommend it as a company to do a career within. Okay, uh, just a, just a comment to make. Really, I mean, I think uh, David, we should have a, you know, an, an unofficial competition through these podcasts as the best PR related story that we get from all of these founders. I think it's probably safe to say that uh, Henrik is in the lead with his with his airport airport PR shenanigans. So thank you, <laughs> thank you, thank you very much, Henrik. That was going to be my uh, concluding. Uh, <laughs> okay, it was that uh, we, we've we solicited two stories from you, the airport one and the, the Richard Branson one, but would you like to end with, uh, is there anything that really just stands out as something that kind of uh, um, you think user, uh, not users, excuse me, listeners should uh, should know? Uh, what's the most entertaining anecdote I think that you've, you've uh, had the last seven years? Oh, that's a good question. And the most entertaining anecdote, um, hmm. There's a lot. I'm actually. Uh, I have a, 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 a diary that I'm, I'm sometimes, <laughs> and I, I like. I recommend that to all founders out there. There's got a, a lot of shit happening to you, 
make sure you write it down because uh, in, when you look back at it, it's going to be a lot of fun, uh, or else you're going to you're going to forget about it. So uh, somewhere along, uh, I have that too. Uh, now, when it comes to mind, uh, it's tough. Um, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. If it's the funniest anecdotes. Mm. Almost interesting. It doesn't even have to be the funniest. Almost interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, uh, nothing really comes to mind now. But um, uh, yeah, no, it's it's blanking right now. <laughs> so that's uh, probably horrible. But uh, I have a lot. But uh, but now it's just uh, I can't remember the the funniest one. Um, a lot of TV programs I can say that I've been on where. Uh, you know, in the beginning, you you are very nervous and you want to say the right thing. Uh, and then after you've said the wrong thing, uh, probably 10 or 15 times, then you realize, okay, the world is not going to collapse because you uh, said something that didn't work out, right? Um, but, um, but I remember one TV show, I think it was German TV, where we did a long interview, an hour long, and it was really going into the details of the law and everything. And I thought it went so well. And then when it eventually aired, um, there was only one question uh, that got uh, like that made it to the program, and that was uh, was, "Are you making money?" And <laughs> to that question, I said uh, I wasn't prepared, so unfortunately, I said yes. Right, and then program stopped. Cut uh, on to the next. Uh, the airlines are being treated poorly by you know compensation companies all over the world. Right, and that was then the angle that they took on this program. And I thought it had just been going fantastic. But you never know when it comes to uh, to stuff like that. So it wasn't that funny. But actually, afterwards, I remember there was someone putting a sombrero hat um, on uh, on my head and then taking a screenshot of that exact picture because it was just ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't know how we could edit this podcast together yet, do you? Oh, so. yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're going to edit right. together individual words to make you sound racist yeah. <laughs> and sexist and everything, right? Uh, perfect. Well, uh, thanks for joining us today, Henrik. Uh, you know, this has been really insightful. And um, as always, this has been How I Got Here, Mosey and Focus Wire's podcast with Kevin May from Focus Wire and myself, David Litwack from Mosey. Uh, thanks again for joining us, Henrik. Thank you, guys. My pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. See everyone next time. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the How I Got Here podcast. We'll be back next week with more inside stories behind startups and innovation in travel and transportation. Check mozio.com slash move for a complete write-up of the highlights of every podcast with translations into five languages. And get your daily dose of news on the digital travel economy by subscribing to the newsletter at focuswire.com. See you next week.